0: Try to listen to gender dysphoria with reverent curiosity.
1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Every Knee Shall Bow, your seasonal Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship i'm mike gomer gormley and i am joined today by dave 100 percent male van vickle how you doing dave <laughs> okay.
2: that's I'm as okay. close as i could come thanks to a middle name for, thanks, yeah thanks for clarifying all that for our listeners our things,
1: listeners have uh, written in questions about wondered, that. <laughs> they about it. have been
2: wondering let's <laughs> answer the question everyone's
0: been asking yeah
1: but today we are joined by a very special guest super excited the man, Jason Everett himself. How you doing today, Jason?
0: I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on.
1: Yeah, Jason, you have been the number one chastity speaker in the Catholic Church in America. I think of like, when I think forever. of chastity, forever. I think of you. Well, okay, that sounds weird. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'd recommend thinking of something else then. <laughs> yeah. uh, no,
1: how can I put this? You know, Christopher West will forever be the TOB guy. Matt mm-hmm. Frad is the porn guy. <laughs> you are the chastity guy which in a certain sense is all of the above i guess right uh,
0: yeah yeah no i mean i've i've come into I remember speaking at a catholic high school once and then i came into a restaurant afterwards, there are a bunch of high school guys, and they saw me come in, they're like, Oh, it's the sex guy. <laughs> and like people that like, no ch- chastity guy, chastity guy in a public setting. So that's awesome. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh no, red flag, red flag. I need <laughs> yeah, an adult. I need yeah. an adult. Safe yeah.
0: environment alert. So
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, we're excited to have you on here because for this season, we are going through difficult topics on sexual morality. Other issues that today plague our culture and tend to set a division between the church and the larger world that we find ourselves in. And for many Catholics, they feel ill-equipped to deal with stuff like transgenderism and homosexuality, especially when the stuff hits home. And so what we want to do is to create, you know, oftentimes people turn to our podcast for like one of two reasons. One is they are DRE or a, a priest or something, yeah. and they're trying to figure out how do I evangelize institutionally within the parish? Mm-hmm. But the other is like, oh man, Thanksgiving is just a few months away, and I got four people now, including my adult children who are atheists. How do I begin the conversation yeah. with them? And so we want to be that gap. We want to fill that gap for people in their, in their Catholic catechesis. You know, put us in between your Bible studies. And the goal is to communicate the love and the knowledge of Jesus Christ in his Catholic church. And not too long ago you were on pints with Aquinas and you were talking about your your new book Male Female Other, a Catholic guide to understanding gender. And I loved the tone that you set because you always set a reverential tone when you're having difficult conversations with someone who may or may not agree with you. So I guess first question is how did you get involved deeply in this topic?
0: Well, it was through doing the past 25 years of chastity talks that you know kids would come up afterwards and you know I gave a talk at a high school in New York and Told the students, hey, if you guys need to hang out and talk afterwards, I'll be here to listen. And the kids formed a line seven hours long and they would come (laughs) up and say, I've never said this to anyone before. But and then it would come out, the abortion, the addiction, the molestation, whatever. But just in the last five years, there's just been a hockey stick acceleration of young people approaching me questions on gender of, of this nature. Parents coming to me like. What do I do? I'm divorced and having a custody battle with my husband over the kids, and yeah, you know, my 15 year old daughter identifies as non-binary and she wants top surgery, and my husband is just going along with her, and he's won custody. What are my legal rights? And you know, they're bawling their eyes out, and you're like, whoa, parents, catechists, kids, priests, seminarians need answers, and it's such a befuddling topic. And the, you know, you, you got a pastor, and he's dealing with this, and he's like. <laughs> I'm sorry, they didn't teach me pastoral care for non-binary parishioners in the seminary. Like, what's our policy? And the bishop's like, I don't have a policy. What's that diocese's policy? So everybody's kind of scrambling, and I sense that. And so I figured, look, I'll read 15 books, and (laughs) I'll have a good handle on it, and I can write my book. I got through the 15. I'm like, dude, I haven't even scratched the surface. Like, I need to read five more on endocrinology, five more on pediatric medicine, on psychology, feminism, Marxism. And then after like 20,000 pages of research felt like, okay, maybe I'm going to spot now where I can understand and explain this with compassion.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. Because one of the things that I'm finding in Catholic conversations is what you find in any conservative forum, right? Which is, ew, gross. I don't get it. Shut up. Get out of here. You know, like Mm -hmm. that's really what you're encountering. You see a man in a dress, you know, you lose your mind and you dismiss the other and the step of having now the good thing is all the catholic books that catholic and protestant the christian books that are out there on transgender issues tend to be while you know trying to craft a a very strong moral point are also very compassionate Mm -hmm. i was just reading dr grabowski's book and he was talking about you know it's so sad that so much of the conversation is carried on by activists who who don't seem to create any room for for -hmm. each other so i find you know your approach your work very important in this sphere so What do you do? What do you say to a parent when their daughter comes out and says that she's trans?
0: Yeah. I mean, there's varying responses I've heard. I know of one mom where the kid said, you know, mom, you know, the daughter said, Mom, I'm non-binary and my pronouns are they, them. And the mom's like, all right, well, they need to go clean their room. All right. (laughs) You know, and just like not getting all you know worked up over the whole thing. But you know, when the kid comes to you and they share this, don't freak out. Don't try to win a debate in the next 45 seconds. What you say is, wow, thank you for telling me that. I'm sure it was probably really scary to tell me that because you're probably afraid that I was gonna yell at you or make fun of you or ground you or dismiss you. Tell me more if you would. When did you start feeling this way? You know, what kind of things kind of trigger that dysphoria? Is it when you have to dress in a really stereotypical way, when you have to engage, you know, in a stereotypical action, like a school dance, like, you know, what was going on in your life when this started to happen? Like, please tell me more. And where have you learned about this? Can you share with me some of the people that have, you know, helped your understanding of what it means to be male, female or whatever. And you want them to walk away from that first conversation, not thinking that, okay, my mom agreed with me on everything, but my mom and my dad, they, they really listen to me. They they mm. might not agree, but they take me seriously. They take my heart seriously. Because yeah. if we incinerate that bridge in the first conversation, be like, well, your anthropology stinks. And here's why <laughs> you have um, an inadequate anthropology. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck there. <laughs> you know, this is not about winning a debate. This is going to be yeah. more of a marathon than a sprint. And so you want to set the tone of, I'm going to listen to what you have to say. I might not always agree with you. And I love you enough to speak the truth, but I want to hear more about this. So the, the posture is kind of hold on on to their hand with one hand, hold on to reality with the other hand. Don't let go of either hand. Try to listen to gender dysphoria with reverent curiosity because it's often a roadmap to that person's healing because it's crying out for a deeper, legitimate, unmet need. And if all they get is shamed for the feelings, then it's like, whoa, okay, you don't believe in my identity. You don't believe in my community of friends. You don't believe in our mission as a victimized minority. Forget you. I'm out of here. Because heck, if I can get you to lose custody of me, the state will pay for my transitioning instead. And so we've got to make them understand, I love you and I do take this seriously, but I love you enough to speak you the truth. Let's walk together in love.
2: It's You know what's interesting about the hypothetical you just put out there, mom, I'm a non-binary, is first of all, I literally have heard that exact situation Mm -hmm. from a parent just recently who even used that language, right? The non-binary, is that when language like that is present, it seems like the fight started way before like the gender issue, right? Like, like yeah. you're using Marxist language as a high schooler or a college mm-hmm. student, right? Like there's some weird stuff. And like, I'm a, you know, discriminated, whatever you I can't remember yeah. the phrase you use, but it's like, there's a major underlying philosophical well, yeah. issue here. You
0: know? No, no, you picked up on the thread that the kid has no idea. Oh, wait a minute, class distinctions, class war, right. the proletariat <laughs> and the bourgeoisie right. and right. like right. eliminating class distinctions in order to create this utopia. Wait a minute, right. where have we heard this one before? The right. teens haven't heard it before, you know, but there's nothing new under the sun. And so, you know, we can understand, okay, I, but, but with that, you've got to, okay, there was a legitimate issue at the time of Marx. Sure. You know, there there was an injustice going on and there is isn't injustice going on right now. Partly these overly rigid gender stereotypes these kids are expected right. to conform to that if you're a real man, you're into this. And if you're a real woman into that, and if you don't fit the mold, you're just not one of us. I mean, one Catholic guy just emailed me Yesterday, and, and he's not your stereotypical 15-year-old girl on TikTok, maybe on the autistic <laughs> spectrum identifying as non-binary. No, this is a middle-aged guy who's been divorced, didn't find out he had autism till he was 31, and grew up with gender dysphoria. And he said, look, growing up, swimming was a dysphoric torture school dances were hell. When I hung out with the guys, I felt like I was just mimicking the gorillas. So they didn't realize I wasn't one of them. But then when I hang out with the girls, I feel like I'm in performance mode, but it's closer to me. And just listening to his lived experience of the struggle gives you a heart of compassion for the individuals instead of like, it's either X, X or X, Y, they're all there is to it. Yeah, you know, we, we need to formulate a more pastoral response that doesn't compromise the truth.
1: So can you break down for our audience We'll do the standard thing because it's all about terminology, yeah. isn't it? What is gender? How many genders are there? And what is gender dysphoria and kind of okay. that background?
0: Yeah, well, the challenge with the word gender is it stinks because yeah. it could mean so many different things. It first emerged in the English language in the 14th century with reference to grammar. You know, that word is masculine, feminine or neuter in its gender. That's predominantly the way it's always historically been used. In the 15th century, it was introduced in the English language as synonymous with biological sex, but wasn't used often for that. It was not used until 1955 in the medical literature in the terms of gender roles and this idea that gender is a social construct in turning what we have as our professions and our interests. And then even more recently, this idea of gender theory and gender identity, this internal sense of myself as male, female, both, in between, or neither. And you see, like, you could easily talk past each other. Well, oh, we just had a gender reveal party. Oh, you reveal the internal sense of your child's unborn gender identity? No, no, no. Oh, you mean the, the social construct of gender that is your unborn fetus? No, 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 no. Like using the same words, all these different meanings. So it's a yeah. very tangled up word that creates a lot of obfuscation when we use it. Now, gender dysphoria is an actual diagnosis in the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Health Disorders. And it's this deeply felt incongruence between my biological reality, is biologically male or female, and my internal sense of being something else. And it creates deep, profound distress. Now, historically, that's been something that's afflicted young boys and middle-aged men. For a lot of the middle-aged guys, it was more of a sexualization of seeing themselves in the feminine form. That's historically what it was. But with the advent of social media, we saw a massive inversion of the sex ratio, skyrocketing of adolescent girls, often on the autistic spectrum, spending massive amounts of time on social media on their TikTok influencers and Tumblr pages, also going to typically public schools where three or four of their friends come out as trans or non-binary, and before you know it, there's a half dozen or a dozen on campus, this rapid onset gender dysphoria. And so I think it's important that we distinguish what do we mean by gender, and a distinction of gender dysphoria, which is something individuals struggle with, with gender theory, which is an ideology that needs to be addressed. Because if we just flatten all these layers, oh, gender, bad, let's argue against it. It's like, well, wait a minute. Now we're talking about gender theory over here. Let's also make sure we address gender dysphoria, which is a very lived, real experience of profound suffering for people. And we need to have compassion in understanding and addressing
2: that. Yeah, you know, one of the things when you were talking there that kind of came to my mind is that, you know, I, th- I think I'm pretty, probably pretty sheltered when it comes to a lot of this stuff. I was working with a man who was detransitioning, transitioning and it was, it was really terrible. He's been a long time. So like he'll have lifetime effects, you know, and it wasn't a sexual thing for him. And I kind of always is like, oh, we just, this is under the gay mm-hmm. banner. Right. But
0: none of what you said really was had to do with like sexual attraction. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why it's so important we not take like a cookie cutter mm. explanation as the origins of the dysphoria. For some people, it is a fetish. Yeah. For other people, it could be induced by pornography. For some people, it could be their, their natural response of being abused in some manner. Yeah, I okay. mean, I, I had known of instances where the young woman was sexually abused, but the boy who was with her at the time was not abused by the uncle. And she learned from that. See, being a boy would have been yeah. safe. And so therefore I need to disguise the evidence of my sexual maturation as a way to feel safe in this very unsafe world. And so that's not some sexual fetish. That's not some porn induced dysphoria, you know, but then you've got, well, it must be some TikTok thing. Well, no, there's kids that have deeply felt since the time they were like three or four years old that I don't want to just be a girl, I am a girl. Like this deep sense that was not given to them by YouTube. And so we've got to respect everybody's individual story instead of thinking, oh, well, you must be this, you must be that. And that's why we have to kind of listen to that gender dysphoria with reverent curiosity. And this isn't to say that if you find the root, it's just all going to go away. We don't want to make false promises, but the more we can understand of ourselves, I think the more compassion we can have on ourselves at the same time.
1: So, yeah. So you have this multiple things, right? You have what I think maybe a lot of our listeners might be familiar with rapid onset gender dysphoria, where it tends to be linked to social groups. It tends to make its way through rounds of young girls, like, was it, like prior to 2006, there were zero, in the scientific literature, there were zero women transsexuals, that term just applied to men, and then all of a sudden there's this rapid explosion to where it outnumbers in the UK four to one at their gender clinics, girls to boys. There's a very real sense, I think it was Dr. Abigail Favale, who we're going to have on our show here soon, but she made this statement that was so powerful. She said, becoming comfortable with our bodies is a lifelong project of every human being. Yeah. Because we are our bodies, right? And mm-hmm. to feel, th- I mean, this is the thing that provokes me to such, like, compassion for these issues. To feel imprisoned and alienated completely by one's own body. Yeah. Um, like, you're in the wrong body. I mean, yeah. that, that must feel like a, a walking purgatory or or mm-hmm. a prison sentence. Yeah. And to not care for those people is, and to just want to dismiss them, I don't know, it, it, it just, it's because we're not thinking about it you know, all the way through, like they literally feel imprisoned by their own bodies.
0: Literally, I remember one woman saying that if, if our identity is defined by our sex, then we'd be slaves to our own bodies. And it's like, whoa, like you could spend some time just yeah. ruminating yep. on what it would feel like to be just stuck in this thing. Whereas this idea that, oh, well, you know, your body is the problem. Your feelings aren't the problem, your body is the problem. So to be true to yourself, You need to follow those feelings. And if they're telling that you are something other than your body, you know, then you can make whatever augmentations you need to make just so you can feel at home. And then this distress, this dysphoria will finally dissipate, you know, because you'll feel at home in your own body. And thus comes the promises of the puberty blockers and the cross-sex hormones and the surgeries and the lifelong medicalization, you know, promising these will be the answer. But what it ends up doing, I love that you use that quote by Abigail Favale because When we make the body a false target of intervention, we actually deprive these people of the opportunity to create strategies to deal with real life difficult things like coping with the fact I'm not thrilled with my body or my sexuality. We're basically flattening all the layers of human complexity into one diagnosis, prance, with one treatment pathway, transition, instead of there's a lot of stuff going on here and yeah. let's learn like you said this lifelong project of feeling at home in our own body and it's such a misuse of language to say no that's conversion therapy but if we just cut off their body parts then we're affirming their identity it's just this total inversion of what language should mean yeah i just Gnosticism it kills me. me it never, kills me.
2: never goes away never yeah. goes away yeah. yeah i think that's interesting because you know I, I remember feeling like uncomfortable like not not necessarily with my body at all like I was always like kind of hyper interested in girls you know so that was like never an issue but like I was a terrible athlete you know I didn't I didn't like sports all that much so I didn't like really to talk about it and I remember feeling very uncomfortable with that yeah. And I, I think like for me, there were like some times where it was like, like that's one of the reasons why I loved fighting when I was little. Cause it was like, it made me feel, it was that one thing I had, you know, Mm -hmm. and that wasn't necessarily good either. Right. I mean, it's not like this isn't unheard of, right. Like that, that it happens to all of us. Right. We all have those situations.
0: Yeah. I remember reading one feminist author, not Christian. And she said, a woman is a person with a female body and any personality, not a person with a female personality and any body. And I think it's, it's a helpful quote because it helps us to realize, okay, I don't have to fit into this overly rigid concept of masculinity right. to be a man. I don't even have to feel that manly to be a man. Because you think of like the most masculine guy I ever met, you know, was deeply passionate about theater, poetry, and the arts. His name was St. John Paul II. You know, right. He didn't right. grow up in a culture that told me he wasn't that much of a man for doing plays. No, I mean, he risked his life under Nazi occupation to keep alive Polish culture through the arts in theater. I mean, very masculine man, but he never had to deal with this stuff. Oh, I'm in the theater department. I'm not like those football players. No, and, and so to me, we got to work on these overly rigid stereotypes that are inducing a lot of this unnecessary dysphoria. Yeah, but the
1: problem is the trans movement has hardened categories of stereotypes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, reinforces I mean, I, them. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I was watching a, a video by Dylan Mulvaney. I don't know. It was like probably in the early, you know, day one hundred of being a girl. Now he doesn't say I'm a girl. And Dylan Mulvaney, God bless him. Oh man, the thing that that he said was. You have, you know, did you ever grow up playing with dolls when you were a little boy? Did you ever grow up playing with trucks when you were a little girl? Maybe you're just in the wrong body and the world is wrong about what it means. You know, now wow. you're free. You're free. And I was like, and so I, I was talking about it with someone who is close to me, who are made nameless and is not uh, practicing Catholic at all and is very, very liberal. And he was like, what? That was beautifully said. What's so wrong with that? I said, didn't you hear? Didn't you hear? If you act this one stereotypical way, right. therefore you're a girl, right. even if you have a penis. And right. if you act in this, I was like, I, was, <laughs> I pointed out in my childhood, I had very stereotypical things that I did as a boy. And then not at all. I am like, I was the kid who like all my brothers were athletes and I'm like, I'm sensitive. Let's talk about <laughs> our feelings, right? That was me, which is what makes me a great podcaster. But yep. um. You know, you have this this experience, right, of of like these hardening of these stereotypes. And I'm just looking at the guy and I'm like, can, can you? He's like well, well, yeah, but, you know, and it's like, <laughs> not yeah, but. Like, this is one of the problems. Yeah. It's not a we're going to cure people who don't fit neatly into these categories. The problem is the categories are way too narrow for yeah. what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. I,
0: I remember when it was Halloween one year. I don't know what I was, like seven years old or whatever. I was. You know, parents are like, What do you want to be for Halloween? And I'm like, uh, Princess Leia. Um, that's what I want to right. be because like, I had a serious crush on her after seeing the first Star Wars. And uh, <laughs> I figure, okay, that's how I express my attraction is I'm just going to get the man buns on the side of my head and a white little dress. And my my dad's like, um, uh, How about we do robots? We'll do robots this year. I'll get some boxes, we'll spray paint them, give you a little like. I'm like, Okay, whatever, that's fine. But Imagine I didn't get that response from my parents. And I imagine like I lived in England, you know, next door to one of these gender clinics, like, oh, well, you're embarking on your gender journey. And what this is, what that can mean. I mean, for a seven or eight year old, if they're not getting the right direction, it could really throw lighter fluid on something that is a total natural way of exploring what does it mean to be male? What do these feelings mean? And so the way that I look at it is that gender stereotypes try to get a person to conform their personality to match their body. Like your body is male, your personality has to fit that. But gender theory does the opposite. It tries to get a person's body to fit their personality. Meaning if your personality's over here, we got to fit the body over there. To me, neither one of these is the correct approach.
2: Yeah, it's horrific. Yeah, this is a new, and like, well, I don't know when this started happening, but so many like kids, when I was involved in youth ministry and at a parish, like when they would come out, it would, a lot of times the story would be, well, I was talking to a school counselor about this and the school counselor would say, oh, that's okay. You're gay or something like that. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, like that's what happened. And now if you look up like anything with psychology, psychiatry, everyone is specializing in, you know, transition support and all these things. It's, it's terrible. I mean, we're really losing here as far as like the the greater battle you know for our culture,
0: yeah, and you can lose your license to practice psychology and I think like a couple dozen states now if you try to get a child to realign their sense of identity with their biological reality that that's right. considered like the rigid conversion therapy, and so you've got a lot of solid counselors out there like hey i I wish I, I could, could help you but You know, I could lose my license to practice if I go along and help you just to feel at home in your own body.
1: That is terrifying. One of the common arguments that you hear is, you know, obviously there are more than two genders, more than just our biological sex. What about intersex people? Yeah. Right. And uh, I don't, I was wondering if you could kind of speak to that argument that people have or intersex brains and things like that.
0: Yeah. Well, well, the first thing you need is, go, OK, time out. Uh, so are you telling me that we should look to the body to reveal the truth of the person? Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, never mind. Like, wait, right, wait a minute. Right. This is overturning the very foundations of gender theory that the body reveals the person. Yeah. That's point number one. Point number two is the vast majority of people who have disorders of sexual development do not identify as trans and the vast majority of people who identify as trans have no disorders of sexual development. In fact, the very clarity of their biological reality is precisely what's triggering their dysphoria, that they're biologically not the other sex. And so first you kind of lay down some of those foundational principles and then be like, okay, well, what what intersex condition are we talking about? Like what brain study are we talking about? Like you read the headlines, oh, trans brain discovered. It's like, okay, look at the research. One of the biggest ones that hit the headlines was of a grand total of six deceased men. Five of whom had had orchiectomies, meaning their testes were removed, all of whom had decades of cross-sex hormones pumped into their body. And the author of the study himself admitted because of the neuroplasticity of the brain, the hormones that we are putting in their body and the deprivation of testosterone because of the castration can actually change the structure of the human brain. So some of our findings may be limited by the neuroplasticity of the brain. Is this being caused by this? Or is this causation or correlation? And so that's some of the brain research. But then also, other studies have come out showing well, wait a minute, your brain is actually like your biological sex, not your gender identity. Then other studies came out and said, no, it's somewhere in between. So the the studies are conflicting, contradictory, small, and none of them are longitudinal. Uh, You know, double blind, randomized trial studies, these things are typically very small. But if they promote the agenda, It's all over the New York Times, but really do your homework. Now, in terms of intersex conditions, that term is pretty imprecise. You'll hear it thrown around like, yeah, did you know that there are more intersex people than redheads out there? It's pretty much the same. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa timeout. What do you yeah. mean by intersex? Because when we hear that, I, I think of like a, a hermaphrodite, like, like someone who has ambiguous genitalia or parts of reproductive organs of both sex. Like, what do you mean by intersex? And you really start drilling down. It's like, oh, well, you know, people like men who have Kleinfelters. Wait a minute, Kleinfelters, that's an XY male who has a functioning XY chromosome who may sometimes have more developed breast tissue, but a lot of men can live their whole life with Klein filters and never even know that they had it and die right. and not know that they had it. Yep. Or some people don't find out they have it until they try to conceive. They find out they're infertile and it's because they have Klein filters. There is no disparity between their genital appearance and their chromosomal sex. This is not in a clinical sense an intersex condition, but it just gets lumped into that when it's being used as an argument. And some people will say, well, what about uh, CAIS? That's a more popular one. It's complete androgen insensitivity syndrome. And this is fascinating. This is where you have a woman who has XY chromosomes, not only XY, she has the active SRY gene, which is typically the clear indication of male developmental pathway, but because of an enzyme deficiency in her body, her body does not respond to testosterone in the natural way, and so what will happen is she will develop anatomically female, and she'll be born, it's a girl, it's a girl, and it is a girl. But then she hits puberty, and what ends up happening is she doesn't have her period. So they go to the doctor, okay, I think this should have happened a long time ago. And they look in, and she doesn't even have a uterus. And in fact, instead of having ovaries, she has undescended testes that instead of producing testosterone, the body will transform that into estrogen. So she develops as a physiological female, although she does not have a uterus, and she has undescended testes. She is a woman who has a disorder of sexual development, but this is not a third sex or a fourth sex or a fifth sex or an indication that gender is a spectrum. It's a disorder of sexual development, just like there can be disorders of neurological development, respiratory development. It does not constitute a third or fourth sex. So when you hear these claims thrown around, really start to ask some pressing questions and you'll find out that the person's knowledge on the particular subject probably goes about a half of an inch deep and if you start to dig deeper than that they don't really know what they're talking about and so do the homework and you'll discover that human beings were sexually dimorphic species you either have you know a gonad of a male or female you either typically have reproductive cells the gametes of sperm or an egg that's it there's no third there's no fourth you know, there's no spectrum in between, although there can be disorders of sexual development. Those don't constitute new sexes.
1: Yeah. And and that's where we also get the language of assigned a gender at birth was from the intersex world where you had these people who were, you know, you got these boys who were born with some sexual ambiguity in, as a ter- <laughs> in, in terms of their genitalia. And so the doctors are like, look, it's a lot easier to cut it off than it is to try to make mm-hmm. one. And so they would remove the boys penises and then try to make them surgically appear to be women. And they would assign, and and this is actually where the term intersex comes from, as opposed to using terms like that a lot of people know, like hermaphrodite and whatnot, but Mm -hmm. the idea of doctors just doing it on their own. And they did it without parental knowledge, parental permission, without awareness of the kid, without any other consultation. And so it was this huge human rights issue in the fifties and sixties that was largely resolved with, you know, layers of consent and a greater understanding of this, that's where that phrase like assigning sex at birth originated from because they would. The doctor would just be like, listen, he's a girl because we're going to do this surgery and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And and it turns out that that's like a horrible way to be a doctor, right? <laughs> and it puts people through undue stress and burdens. But analogously, so let's shift to puberty, right? Because this is the big thing. This is the big thing. Now, in, in, in my last youth ministry gig i'm now out of parish ministry and i can breathe a little easier in parish ministry i was doing youth ministry post-covid it was just me and i had uh the high school juniors and seniors that are talking all their parents are like hardcore republican conservative maga hat wearing people and all their kids are the most woke kids on the face of the earth and they don't even know it and so we're having these conversations right and one of them you know we talked a little bit about trans stuff and whatnot and they said but if i'm in the wrong body and i was like That's okay Going through puberty has to be the worst thing imaginable. So why can't I delay puberty until I'm an adult and can figure this stuff out?
0: Yeah. What would you say to that? Okay, well, like how would you go about delaying puberty? Well, you would give the kid Lupron, which is the same drug given to chemically castrate male sex offenders. Now, if you're not going through puberty when you should be, that's actually a disease, it's called Cullin syndrome. And so this drug is inducing a diseased state in children. It's not just like pausing puberty, it's pausing neurological development, it's pausing bone development, and that's a critical window in your life. Like if you miss the window of bone development, you can't just recoup that when you're 36. Okay, I wanna grow some bone now. Like right. it's done. And so we've got 15 year old boys in the trans community now having osteoporosis and broken yeah. fingers and knuckles and bones and things. And it's like, wait a minute, what's gonna happen when that kid's 75 years old? I mean, how brittle is he gonna be then if he skipped this window now? And when yeah. you put a kid on puberty blockers, is it? it is not a pause button. It's a fast forward button to cross sex hormones. Cause almost hundred percent of the time when you put a kid on puberty blockers, they go on to cross sex hormones. So it needs to be viewed as a single treatment pathway, but that sterilizes the kid for the rest of their life. Cause if you got a 11 year old boy goes on puberty blockers for four years, if yeah, let's fast forward, now he's 15, All his buddies have broader shoulders, deeper voices, and a five o'clock shadow. And he still looks like a prepubescent 11-year-old boy. I mean, you think he's going to feel more aligned in his masculine identity? He's going to feel less. And so it initiates a cascade of clinical interventions in this kid's life. This is not a pause button. It's a fast-forward button. And you put the girls on this stuff, and the studies are clear that girls are more likely to self-harm after having gone on puberty blockers, that's why all the Scandinavian countries right now, they're doing a massive U-turn on this. Like, yeah. good luck getting puberty blockers for your non-binary 14-year-old girl in Amsterdam now. They're like, yeah, well, put your name on the list. Uh, we'll get back to you in about a year and a half, and then we'll assess you for nine months to see if yeah. you're a suitable candidate. And the kid's like, what? By the time you make up your mind, my puberty is going to be finished. And it's like, exactly. Exactly. They're buying themselves time because kids need to go through this. And hey, to not really like your body during puberty, Welcome to the human race. Uh, the answer is not to. Puberty disease. was the worst. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it was the
1: worst. We should I do know. a podcast episode on just how awful puberty was. For yeah. for I mean, I was
0: promised a growth spurt and I'm still <laughs> waiting for that. It's like, what the heck? Well,
2: the problem is when puberty just doesn't end. I feel like I'm still 12 years old. I can barely control myself. <laughs> yeah. um, this is what's interesting that I've been thinking about and, and maybe things have changed, but like the, the, the man I mentioned who I've been working with for, For a few years now. And he's just like the saddest individual, right? I mean, he he was a woman for like more than a decade. And one of the things that I I just want to bring up is like, they are just throwing darts here medically. Like this guy, when you hear his story, the body tries to overcome all of this and compensate. And so he was like, he was like a pin cushion, right? Like they were just constantly like, well, this is happening. So let me try this. Let me oh, yeah. up this dose. Let me lower this dose. Let me cut this out. You know, it's like he he was like a uh, Frankenstein. You know, oh, it was yeah. terrible, and, and that's and he feels just. I
0: mean, horrible, you can imagine. But. Yeah, these drugs are being used off-label. I mean, this is not something that has been approved. It, it has not been yeah. approved to use puberty blockers to give people to explore their gender journey, no. I mean, the time puberty blockers have been allowed, historically, is, is to treat precocious puberty, meaning your puberty is starting too early, right. Right. and so like they're you know, just it old. off a little bit for yeah. you to get to the developmentally correct time in life, and then you go off them, And you resume, we have no data of like, okay, well, what happens if you just stop it when it should happen? And then you never get to happen. What happens when you have a grown man who has the heart that never went through uh, the development? You you got a man with a child's heart in their body. How's that going to fare 30 years from now? Well, we'll
1: find out. Yeah. And we don't care is the thing. It's the ideology is possessing us, right? As a culture, it has possessed us. We are not asking common sense questions like, Is this surgery going to lead to positive outcomes? You know, we just go and do all this stuff. And the horror stories are so real. And you have these 23-year-olds who are waking up to broken bodies who have infections that are chronic that will never go away from their surgeries and they're looking at a life and they're like, I was taken advantage of by the adults who should have known better.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, you think of Jazz Jennings, you know, that TV personality of trans. I mean, looks like some little cute little 15 year old girl, you know, and they put puberty blockers on this boy. But the problem is if you block a child's puberty because, oh, well, they'll make it easier to transition later, Okay, well, what happens when he wants to have bottom surgery later to identify as female and there's not enough genital tissue to even use for the reconstructive surgery? And so you have to harvest tissue out of their intestines to fashion a neo vagina in that person's body, which is creating a wound in the body and calling it a reproductive organ. I mean, it's like you said, the body is fighting against this. And sometimes you do the surgery, it didn't work out. Like we got to do another surgery. And then another surgery, I I remember one woman I read of, she said her medical bills alone in her transition have totaled more than $1 million so far. That's one person. Somebody's getting real rich off this.
2: Oh, (sighs) yeah. I think that's the secret right here. It's it's money money money, especially off-label drugs. I mean, you get you
0: know that's a big. That's why Planned Parenthood's getting involved in it. Abortions are going down, and they're hopping on board all this stuff now.
1: Mary Harrington, who wrote a book "Feminists Against Progress," she says that contraception is the first act of transhumanism. Mm. And for her, because it's it's not curing a disease, yeah. Yeah. it's trying to go beyond biology. Say
0: that again. Contraception is the
1: first act of transhumanism, Bang right? Go. So going beyond your human nature, right? And so yeah. because for her, and she thinks abortion is, is connected to it. Uh, more or less is failed failed contraception. For her, contraception is trying to address something that is functioning healthily, correctly, necessarily, and trying to disrupt it for the sake of human-imposed ends that are disruptive of what the body wants, right? So it's like human rationality, scientific rationality, trying to overcome nature. And then she said you could draw a straight line from that to straight to these these drugs, like what is it called, Lupron? Lupron. Lupron. Uh Lupron and all of these things of, of the human mind and science trying to conquer it. She said, but what's the immediate effect? Why does it become so popular? And she says, once we have this area of ourselves that we can conquer technologically, she mm-hmm. said, and then we can assert freedom over it. Cause you know, pregnancy is a very terrifying thing to a young woman prior to contraception, right? Like the thought that I could get pregnant if I have a casual hookup, that's a pretty big deal to a woman and to a man who who is her prospective partner. Right. So she said this notion of becoming unfertile, right, like t- to remove that from your self-conception as a human being. What ends up happening is we create the the situation where there's nothing but these levels of antagonism in the human heart against our very nature. Bodies. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and we keep asserting this. And so and then she said the last act is we commoditize it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can contracept sex, then sex becomes free. It can, becomes controllable. And then it becomes a commodity, pornography, sex work, OnlyFans, like whatever it is. And then you look at the human person now and it's like, where's all the money coming from? Where's all the money going? And it's like, because we've commodified it. We've now controlled, at least in these horrific ways, we're trying to control puberty and you know, gender development. And now we're commoditizing it, right? And that's the terrifying thing is you have a billion dollar industry built upon the
0: scar tissue of children. And if you think about it, the terror, so to speak, of pregnancy doesn't actually go away. It intensifies in a person who's contracepting.
2: Because yeah,
0: at least before contraception, people knew, okay, I might get pregnant if I do this thing. Whereas when they're contracepting and they become pregnant, they think something went wrong. And it can be blamed on the contraception. So it's almost like a pregnancy is a disease, you know, then a sense contraception is like the vaccine. And then if that fails, abortion is the cure. And so you have women acting against their own nature because uh, a man can have intercourse without getting pregnant, but a woman can't do that. And so in a sense, it's giving her the reproductive role of a man in her body. Oh, good. Now I can engage in this without any risk of getting pregnant myself. And then when it happens, I saw one contraception ad. It called pregnancy the mother of all nightmares. And so that is a contraceptive (sighs) mentality from the
1: start. Oh, The mother of all nightmares nightmares that's what mary have you ever heard of mary ellington you ever heard of her before harrington harrington no i don't think so huh she she writes for unheard which is a uk thing and she's yeah. a she just came out with her, her book was i think it was called feminist against progress but oh. yeah that's her that's her big thing is we in trying to create a world where women can do whatever they want with their sexuality aka act like men we've chipped away at what it means to be a woman Mm-hmm. And that's her critique of feminism, of hardcore progress. She would consider herself, I think, a first wave feminist. But like, feminism is this increasing franticness to make women's lives as much like men's lives. Yeah. And she's like, you're annihilating the very thing that mm-hmm. makes us different. Yeah. And why do we
0: want to annihilate this? This is silly. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like feminism. I think of it as kind of like a a snake that started swallowing its own tail and has now finally reached its head. And it's not entirely sure what to do now. It's like, wait a minute. The the (laughs) whole premise that we promoted has now cannibalized ourselves. And now, wait a minute. Do I stand up for women in sports? Do I stand up for women in the, in the bathrooms? Like what what do I do now? Like what happens now? Yeah. Yeah. Just
1: frozen. We're going to take a quick break right now. Folks listening to us, text EKSB to 33777. You'll get on our email list. We're going to hit Jason up with a couple of the questions about these issues, some very practical things to think about when we come back. And yeah, we'll, we'll wrap up this discussion with Jason. Thank you all for listening. We'll be right back.
2: Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Janssen. And we're the hosts of Catholic Classics.
1: Join us for season two of the podcast, where we will read and explain The Confessions by St. Augustine.
2: So The Confessions, it's a classic. We all know that. But why read it? In this book, St. Augustine testifies to God's power, God's ability to draw him from a life of sin and error into a life of holiness and of genuine service of God's people. And not only are the confessions a testimony to St. Augustine's life, but also a testimony to the way by which
1: God works in each of our lives, bringing us from our sin to a life of holiness, drawing us ever more and more into God's very own life. To follow along, you can find the reading plan at ascensionpress.com slash Catholic Classics. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope that was a good message from Ascension Press. They are such lovely and handsome people. We are here with Jason Everett. He is answering all of our questions about the current gender confusion and crisis that we're going through. His wonderful book, Male, Female, Other, A Catholic Guide to Understanding Gender. It is a book that I have purchased with my own money. We want to have him on here because not only does he know JP2 and Theology of the Body, but he has done a lot of study in his years of ministry and chastity encountering these questions about transgenderism. So I have a couple practical questions that I wanted to yes. ask you about dealing with this. Like we led with, you know, what do you do when it hits home? How about this? What do you do when it hits the workplace? And you're told either a with pronouns or put your pronouns in email You know, I'm a big live, not by lies kind of guy, and I don't want to. But at the same time, I'm also a a chicken who wants to be gainfully employed. And like, you know, you're balancing so many things. Right. So what what do we do in these situations?
0: Yeah. Well, first thing is to realize probably the vast majority of people on Earth are totally on board with us in terms of this stuff. But it, it appears not that way because they're going along with this only as long as it's socially or economically expedient to do so. I once heard a quote that said, it's very difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon him not understanding it. And yeah, so
1: Upton Sinclair. Yeah, I yeah, love that quote.
0: You know, so uh, when it comes to this issue, I mean, you look at what, what's happened with Target and Bud Light over the last, you know, several months, that shows <laughs> where people are really at with this. They're like, I'm not on board with this. Oh, but when it comes to keeping my job so I can get food on the table, take care of my family, I'm just going to lay low and just tow the party line. If, yep. But if enough people actually speak up and say, you know, I'm not really on board of this, like you can't force me to speak a particular way, you know, that there's that side of the debate. Like we, we got to speak up for the sake of the truth. But there's another side that does need to be considered. Like, let's say I'm working in the H.R. department at an office and and I find out that one of our employees at this big corporation has actually transitioned You know, from male to female and everybody here thinks that's a lady, but I know that's a dude. And so is it my job really to be the gender police and just be like, hey, did you hear about him or she or this? Like, wait a minute. I thought that was a Roberta, not Robert, whatever. You could see how exposing someone like that would be a lack of Christian charity. Okay, is it really my job to announce this to the whole world? It really isn't. And you're probably going to incinerate any potential bridge you could have to show that person the love of Christ. By, by jumping the gun on it and doing that. So you can see, okay, I could see some nuances necessary. Now this would obviously be different than your 14 year old daughter proclaiming she's got new pronouns and well, you better go along with it. So what I try to propose is if hearing a particular pronoun causes a considerable amount of distress to that person, then try to avoid it, try to just work around it. you know. And the nice thing with pronouns, at least, you know, he, she, they're third person pronouns. You're not using them when the person is there typically, it's right. more you, right. you, you. And so I would say, try to avoid the thing. And if it really comes to a head of just like, well, you need to call me he or she or whatever. Well, you could say to the person, look, you know that I love you, you know, that I respect you. And I would never want to do anything to hurt you. But I also feel like if I were to use that, I feel like I'm being dishonest with you. And I don't want to do that. And And I hope you don't reject me because my viewpoints are different than yours. And I don't reject you because your viewpoints are different than mine. I think the world's a really big place with lots of different people who believe different things. And we could learn a lot from each other if we made room for one another in our lives. And hopefully if they hear that, take that kind of pastoral approach that I'm not rejecting you just because I disagree with you, they'll realize, okay, this isn't some hate-monging bigot. This is just someone who sees earth differently than I do. Let's celebrate diversity. You know, Let's make room for inclusion. Because the modern idea is that really nothing is more exclusive than modern inclusivity. Right. Like, yeah, they're exclusive, you're inclusive unless you disagree with us. And then it's, you know, off to the guillotine for you. So I said, we got to be bold in speaking up, but have enough charity to realize there's a necessity for nuance in certain circumstances.
2: Yeah. And kind of along the same line, it's a debate in evangelization circles now about titles. Right. I mean, it's strange that we're so obsessed with titles, like that we, we want to classify ourselves and everything. You know, I had the privilege of spending a lot of time with Father John Harvey, the late Father John Harvey, the founder of Courage, and he was dead set against titles, right? Mm-hmm. He would not use the word gay. He was very much like that. But there are people who say like, well, if you're going to evangelize, you got to build that trust. I wonder like just how do you approach this like with, with this kind of thing? I mean, do you, when you're trying specifically to evangelize someone, not just navigate the workplace, but when you're trying to really reach a person. What, how do you handle that kind of thing?
0: Yeah, well, one, we want to make sure we're doing more listening than we are talking. Yeah. A lot of times they be like, okay, how do I debate this person? It's like, no, no, no. You want to listen to the story and be the ears of Christ, not just his mouth, but we also need to be careful in terms of Catholic language. I mean, I just gave a talk last week to more than a thousand teachers in the Green Bay Diocese about this, where they wanted me to come in and give them a day of formation. And I talked about the importance of the language that we use, because if we're adopting the language of the world, in many respects, we've already lost. If I'm talking about someone who's born female— It's like, well, wait a minute. What was she five minutes before before she was born? What is she five minutes after the birth? What is she for all eternity? If I'm talking about someone assigned female, I mean, we've already talked about the, like, okay, did someone assign my blood type to? Am I assigned AB or whatever? That's not Catholic language. The idea that there's trans women and cis women. It's like, okay, well, wait a minute. Now we're just basically saying they're both women or what about someone who's biologically male okay is there another male who's not biological one you can see how we've uh, i don't right. realize right. adopted all this language but the most important one is trans like we've got three kids that are trans in our youth no, no 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 you have three people you have three individuals who experience gender dysphoria or who identify as trans because if we start like he's lesbian she's gay he's trans like There's not like 58 different types of persons in the universe. There's three. There's divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, angelic persons, angels and demons, and human persons made male and female in the image and likeness of God. And so if you're a human person who experiences gender dysphoria, your identity is a beloved child of God, the Most High. Your identity isn't trans. Because if we think trans is a label you will treat people very differently than if you believe there are children who experience gender dysphoria and adults who experience gender dysphoria versus people who are trans. Because if trans is the diagnosis, transition is the solution. Whereas if there's people wrestling with this, then we're gonna approach it from a more, a perspective of a Catholic anthropology of your identity is not your dysphoria. Like, are we really affirming the person here or are we just affirming the dysphoria? Yeah, Yeah, and I think the powerful thing
2: about that is, you know, when you use the youth ministry example, it's maybe three kids amongst 400 who all have problems, right? We all have different issues. We all are struggling with everything, right? It's not, this isn't like, it's not new to have a problem,
0: right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And that's the key is that this, this, this idea that if you have a problem, then it shouldn't be there. And we just need to get rid of it so you don't have any distress in your life. It's like, okay, distress is a part of life. And we need to give these people real solutions for how to deal and manage with stress and depression and anxiety and autism and just telling them, oh, the solution is your body is the problem. And so you weren't born in the wrong body. I mean, you're born into the wrong culture you know, a culture that's telling you you have to hurt your body to be your authentic self. It's like, no, you don't need to reconstruct your body. You need to reconstruct our culture. Yeah, this was fantastic. Thank
1: you. Yeah, I think of George Orwell in 1984 where the obsession was to control language and they were always trying to simplify language and do things to language because they knew that if you could control language, you could control thought mm-hmm. right. thought is expressed through language but if you go the other direction you can, can actually control thought by limited language and it's interesting because you you can study different cultures and what they do have a word for what they have a million words for and what they have zero words for and it actually showcases something really important about their culture yeah. george orwell he has this essay called politics in the english language and he talks about this And i just have this quote that i love he says uh political language and with variations, this is true of all political parties from conservatives to anarchists, is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable and to give an appearance of solidity to pure wind. You know, 1984 and Animal Farm were written as these great like warning stories of yeah. what happens when Marxism is, is followed all the way in lockstep and the totalitarianism. But this is what we see in the soft totalitarianism in the west is this you know everything is morally relative except for these absolute things that we made up last week and now everyone has to be in lockstep with it and it's terrifying for so many parents so again i want to recommend your book male female other and to help parents in particular i think this is the place where it starts parents and youth ministers conversations need to be had and we need to do a ton of the listening because if we just come at it as like, well, they need to stick to their, you know, bathrooms and blah, 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 right? We understand how the debate has played out on Fox News and MSNBC. For us as Catholics, those avenues of belligerent dismissal are cut off to us. They don't belong to us. Those are roads traveled by political pundits and and they do their thing. We are here to love people into the mm-hmm. kingdom of God. And I think your book helps us do exactly that. So thank you so much. For coming on the show today
0: oh uh, you put that very well in terms of like we got to rise above the current cultural way to address this thing and authentically catholic so thank you for having me on keep up the great work guys
1: yeah awesome dave it has been good chatting with you sir thanks it has been good t- <laughs> <Cheerio>. <laughs> uh, yeah, folks text us eksb at 33777 you'll get on our email list where we'll give you show notes such as the links to purchase his book and jason's other content that he has available what's the main website that you're that you're running stuff out of chastity.com chastity.com That's awesome. Yeah, that is a ground-level domain.
0: Yeah, right. (laughs) Right. It was owned by a satanic comic book company that wouldn't sell it to us for less than $100,000. And so I got some nuns on that. They did some intercessory prayer. We ended up getting it for zero for free. (laughs)
1: That's awesome. That's a great story. Turns out the nuns all killed them all. It was crazy. They drove. (laughs) Pulled out the big guns. Yeah, Yeah, it was crazy. Literal guns. No. No, Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, God bless you all. See you later.